Tonight we're talking about the named and the nameless, the black Americans who have lost their lives at the hands of racism in the American criminal justice system and the individuals who control it. Since February of 2014, black folks have been giving voice to their pain and anger on social media and taken to the streets under the banner of a movement called Black Lives Matter. Their allies of all races, genders, and ethnicities have been standing proud under that banner as well. Tonight on Full Circle, we're dedicating our entire show to the movement that speaks to so many across the country and finally sheds light on an injustice that's been going on since Emmett Till. Innocent black Americans are killed and the murderers, especially those with power and privilege, get acquitted at trial and sent back into society. That's how we see it tonight on Full Circle. We'll be right back after this powerful anthem. Stay with us. Say his name, Freddie Gray. Say his name, Freddie Gray. Won't you say his name? Ayanna Jones, say her name. Ayanna Jones, say her name. Ayanna Jones, say her name. Ayanna Jones, won't you say her name? Sandra Bland, say her name. Sandra Bland, say her name. Sandra Bland, say her name. Sandra Bland, won't you say her name? special edition of Full Circle on KPFA 94.1 FM. Thanks. Uh, tonight's show is going extra long all the way until 8.30, and we'd like to thank our friends at La Onda Baita for collaborating with us and allowing that to happen. We're your hosts. I'm Vika Aronson. And I'm Ephraim Colbert. Tonight, we're bringing you dialogue around police accountability and dismantling racism in the criminal justice system. We'll hear reflections on the recent police shootings from Black, Oakland native and Full Circle producer, J.C. Howard. And a bit later in the night, joining me live over in our performance studio for a panel discussion are Elizabeth Niados from Asians for Black Lives, Ned Saturu from the Black Panther Party, Nancy Armstrong from Anti-Police Terror Project, and by phone, Oscar Grant's uncle, Uncle Bobby. We'll hear a sound collage from Black Lives Matter's National Day of Rage held last Friday, July 15th, and we'll speak with child psychologist and Bay Area mother of two, of, of two children, um, Allison Briscoe-Smith. Dr. Briscoe-Smith will tell us how we can talk to black children about race and racism uh, at a time when police violence against young black folks is all too prevalent. In fact, we got Dr. Briscoe-Smith here with us in the studio. Thanks so much for being here, Dr. Briscoe Smith. Thanks for having me here. All right, I'm getting my notes together here. 
Thanks for your patience. No problem. All right. <laughs> So Dr. Briscoe-Smith is, clini- is a clinical psychologist who specializes in trauma, post-traumatic stress disorder, and how children understand race. She's a professor at the Wright Institute in Berkeley, and she has some practical experience, too, with a son and a daughter at home. Um, so what I want to know is how are kids responding to these traumatic incidents of police violence in their communities? And um, also, secondly, how is actually seeing these videos? Because they're, we all know mm-hmm. they're, they're out there um, to be seen by anyone, everyone. How is that impacting children's responses? Sure. So children are having lots and varied reactions. But one of the things that I even appreciate in the framing of your question is the understanding that kids are paying attention. Kids are paying attention. They are seeing and they are being impacted. And that's one of the very first issues is that people will assume that kids aren't paying attention or don't. No. So I think it's been varied from anything that I've heard and seen clinically from nightmares, distress, not wanting to be separated from parents to appearing like everything's okay. So a broad range of experiences. But again, the the basic idea is that kids are paying attention. In terms of the videos, the videos can be really distressing. Not can be, because they are. Are really distressing for us as adults to take in. Also really hard for kids to take in. So it's challenging for kids to see that level of um, of violence um, up front and and for real. Um, And we know that also kids are being exposed to it. So how do we talk to kids when when we're watching videos with them mm-hmm. or when we find out that they've seen these videos in some other way, maybe outside the home? Yeah. How do you respond to that as a parent? Well, the first thing really is to respond and to not respond with silence. So I would suggest that it's... Um, probably not helpful to show the kids the videos of people being murdered. Um, It's hard for them to take it in. It's hard to really digest that. But they will pick it up from school or hear about it. So the other thing is to kind of check it out with the kids. Check out what they have seen and they have experienced. So ask them questions. What have you seen? What do you think about that? How are you understanding? Um, And then to kind of really validate their experiences, uh, validate their reactions. Yes, you're scared. Yes, you're anxious. Yes, you're mad. Um, And then respond by trying to articulate where they are safe. Um, And they're safe in connection with you. They're safe with certain caregivers. So give them, um, the way I like to say it is a way out of no way. Give them a strategy for how they can remain safe and connected with the grownups around them. Wow, thanks for that. Um, so in addition to the the visuals out there, um, there are also, there's information. There's also the hard facts of life um, that, you, that you will encounter as an American and probably especially as a black American. Um, things like black Americans are two and a half times more likely as white Americans to be shot and killed by the police, which is a statistic that's going around a lot mm-hmm. these days. Um, and from a psychological perspective, you cite studies about people's perception of black and white boys age like this is you know hard there's hard evidence for the fact that black boys are perceived as older than they are and police officers with implicit race bias are more likely to shoot to kill when it's a black suspect Mm -hmm. so how do you handle that Mm -hmm. um especially as a black a parent or a parent of black children. Mm-hmm. How do you talk to your kids about that? So 
You know, one of the ideas is that we as black folks have been talking about these issues for a long time, and that's how we end up here, being successful and resilient. We wouldn't be here but for the language of our parents and the language yeah. of our of our ancestors to negotiate being taken from our land or being sold or being lynched. You know, so we have a history of being able to have successful stories. And what I think right. I think is really important is that we continue to connect our kids to those stories. What are our stories of resilience and resistance and overcoming? Um, so it's really important in small ways to connect our kids up with those those kinds of conversations and to also be specific about what happened within your family, where are your places of connecting. It's good to have those kinds of pieces as counterpoints and as strategies and also being real about what we're seeing, being real about our distress, being real about the fear that we as parents have. We also um, have to be able to do this in community, community with each other as black parents, but also community with our allies. I'm really concerned about the level of silence on behalf of white parents um, and white parents with white kids. So they have to start talking to their kids too so that I'm not doing this alone. So I think we have lots of opportunities and resources out there um, specifically for parents of color and for kids of color um, that we can kind of turn to. But I I think we cannot be silent. Uh, We really have to raise up our voices and talk. And you have, that's a really great segue into the next thing, which is like you have this really great talk that people can find on uh, Google if they just search your name uh, and uh, on YouTube. And you talk about this smog is the analogy that you use about um, implicit bias, if I if I have that correct. And And it's about how the smog affects all of us. So you, you're talking about how white people and white parents need to stand up and have these conversations with their kids. It makes me wonder, can you elaborate on the smog? Can you explain to our audience sure. what you mean by that, how it affects us all? Sure. So the, the analogy of the smog, I borrow that analogy from another elder and person I respect in the community, Beverly Tatum, who does a lot of research and writing on this topic. So she uses the analogy of the smog to speak to that we are filled in an environment that sends daily persistent messages about who's on the up and on the downside of power. And those messages are almost invisible, but we breathe them in and we We breathe them in and we take them in. And so one way of thinking about that is implicit bias. Implicit bias is a concept that's getting a lot of awareness. And those are the biases that we hold outside of our awareness or unconscious, but we actually make lots of decisions about. So that's what the smog is. All these negative messages, all this kind of persistent negativity about who's good and who's bad, who needs to be shot, who doesn't, all of those kinds of things, that's what the smog is. But we all breathe it in. So what can we do? Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, the I think there's a couple different levels, one of which is I, I tend to get that question with the people focusing on the individual things that we can do. That's super important. But we have to knock down the smokestack that's making the smog in the first place. That's the larger issue that we can do a lot of things to try to wave away the smog on the interpersonal mm-hmm. level. But the evidence that we have in terms of research is that individual-based things actually don't last very long. We need systematic, system-wide change and policy change. But there are some small things that we can start with, one of which is to get informed about implicit bias. There's great places you can go. Kerwin Institute is a good place to kind of find a lot of information. We can start paying attention to our counter-stereotypic information, so things that are outside the stereotype, different than the than the smog. Um, How do you do that? Just yeah. by meeting somebody? Meeting someone's great. Or that we just talked about it at the beginning, which was is that um, actually right now in the United States, there are 600,000 more African-American men in college 
than mm-hmm. in jail. Now, most folks on the radio and even here are going to say in prison first. That's automatic. But we have to actually get associated with the real stats. So Monique Morris has a great book called Black Stats. So do our homework, spend time connecting with each other, be in close proximity with folks that are counter to the stereotype. Challenge yourself when you're faced with the stereotype. There's some evidence actually that if in your head you say no, when faced with a stereotype, that helps. Mm-hmm. So there are these things that you can do that will help. And something instructive you said in your talk too was um, that just being around and associating with people who aren't in your race isn't enough. That it, you have to be peers mm-hmm. in the environment, in the setting. So I, yeah. I really appreciated that too. Um, and so in in our brief maybe one minute we have left. Um, Can you tell our audience what are some resources they can access for for this kind of stuff? I think the first thing is to know that there are access, there are available resources. So look, Google's a great place to start, but there are great places like Curran Institute. The Oakland Public Library has a great um, list of books and curriculum and pedagogy related to what's called a Ferguson curriculum. Um, There are great places to go in terms of uh, websites and conversations so just look, it's out there. And how can people find you yeah. on the web? So they can find me on the, my website, which is Dr. Briscoe Smith, D-R-B-R-I-S-C-O-E-S-M-I-T-H um, dot com. So drbriscoesmith.com or just Google me, Alison Briscoe Smith. Awesome. Do yeah. it. It's it's great. You'll find many wonderful things. I promise great. you. So thanks so much for being with us, Dr. Briscoe Smith. It was great to have you here. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. We're going to change gears now, move out of the home and onto the streets. Full Circle producer David De La Gran went to downtown Oakland for the National Day of Rage last Friday, and it brought back a few sounds. After that, I'll be moving into our performance studio for a dynamic panel discussion on these recent events. But first, sounds from the Day of Rage by David De La Gran. How do you feel empowered by the Black Lives Matter movement? I feel empowered because I'm a minority too. And it's it's a blessing to have everybody support. You know, it's, if you look around, it's not just black people. It's whites, it's Hispanics, it's blacks, it's Asians, and it's all ages. I feel empowered because it's just great that everybody from the community is joining us and, and feels the same. Everyone is fed up and it's great energy out here and it's very empowering to be around everybody here. It doesn't empower me because to me it's a movement of hate. I'm not empowered by hate. I'm empowered by love and service. I'm a mom of a murdered Northern California police officer. My son was shot in the line of duty in 2005. His murder devastated our family. All lives matter, including our blue lives. How do you feel empowered by the Black Lives Matter movement? I feel like it's really empowering for all nationalities, not only black, but also Native Americans, Chinese, Latinos, because we're all losing people behind the uh, hands of police and their guns. It feels really good to be in the street saying no to what's been happening, that there are bodies out here and voices being raised. It also helps push back against the isolation. We're all really, 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 
really angry we'll and we're up. scared, right? They're shooting us in the streets. So there's something really helpful about being able to be with other people. Currently, it's a black car full of police officers that have AR-15s that are ready, that are locked and loaded for us. But we out here and we ready to risk our lives for what matters. And it's not just us black people. It's black people, it's Mexicans, it's white people, it's everybody. And it's crazy because I asked a, a white police officer, how did he feel about all the black killings? And he told me that he has no opinion. I won't be empowered until we're actually empowered as a people. I don't think that there's a sense of empowerment that comes from me having to literally stop traffic, shout at the top of my lungs. The day I don't have to do that, and the day these people don't have to do that, that's when I'll feel powerful. That was David De La Gran sharing with us some sounds from the Black Lives Matter National Day of Rage last Friday in Oakland. You're listening to Full Circle on KPFA 94.1 FM. And now I'm going to throw it over to my co-host Ephraim, Ephraim Colbert and Full Circle producer Teresa Adams in the performance studio for our panel discussion on racism in the criminal justice system. Thanks, Vika. Teresa and I are here with several people connected to the Black Lives Matter movement for a panel discussion around police accountability and dismantling racism in the criminal justice system. Teresa, Adam, Teresa Adams is my co-facilitator, and she's going to let us know who all is here. That's right, Ephraim. So today we have here with us, we have Elizabeth Neeros from Asians for Black Lives. We have Saturu Ned with the Black Panthers. We have Nancy Armstrong with the Anti-Police Terror Project. And Dr. Allison Briscoe is joining us on, joining us on this side of the room right now. And hopefully later we will have um, Uncle Bobby, Oscar Grant's uncle on the line. Thank you all for being here tonight. So let's start with you, Liz. Um, when we spoke on the telephone, one of the things we talked about was the letter that um, you all created for your the elders in your community. So first of all, if you could just tell us a little bit about yourself and then uh, give us an idea of what the For Asians for Black Lives movement means to you and about the letter. Yeah, uh, thank you, Teresa. Um, so my name is Liz, and I'm with Asians for Black Lives, which is a group that started in the Bay Area uh, shortly after the non-indictment of the police officers who murdered Eric Garner and Michael Brown and mobilized really in response to the call from Ferguson which was to shut down business as usual, to interrupt the flow of things and let people know that black lives are being murdered by police throughout the country and we really can't accept this anymore and to mobilize the Asian community to come together and stand with our black brothers and sisters and families to really demand changes. And so in light of the recent killings, police killings of Philando Castile and Alton Sterling, we had a letter that went out to renew this call. And um, a lot of the points that we wanted to raise were that these police killings are not new, that they are part of a system that upholds white supremacy, and also looking at how the responses to those killings were very different to the response to the killing in Dallas of the 
five policemen and also holding Asians accountable with their privilege to really uphold justice. And finally, to just reiterate that all lives are not going to matter until black lives matter and to really drive that point home to our community specifically. That's, that's great to hear. And so what has the community response been to the letter? The community response has been... I'm not sure if it's been as widely circulated yet as we would hope. And the um, other side of it is that there has also been a letter that's gone more viral that came out of the Asian community that we um, are not specifically identified with. And this was a crowdsourcing letter that went all across the internet and really spread. And from my understanding, that's been really resonating with folks and their ability to open up conversations with their families. Fantastic. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for that. So I guess my question will be if, uh, for Mr. Saturu next. I'm going to take this question from you, mm -hmm. Teresa, if you don't okay. mind. <laughs> so uh, what parallels do you see between Black Lives Matter and the Black Panther movement? And um, First of all, I want to say I'm happy to be here, and I think this is a very, very important discussion, and hopefully we'll have more of these. Um, I am a former member of the Black Panther Party and a member of our international host committee, which is planning for the 50th anniversary celebration of the founding of the party right here in Oakland. It's becoming a worldwide event. Our parallels, it's like deja vu, a full circle for us. As you remember, the party was initially initiated uh, for the purpose of one of the issues was police brutality. And at that point in time, uh, we would go around with the uh, law books, stand 20 feet away and read our brothers and sisters or anyone was being accosted by the police illegally, being searched illegally, uh, being harassed illegally, as they had certain inalienable rights, which we feel maybe there needs to be something put out again about your rights when confronted with police officers. And we look at this also as a bigger picture. We look at it as a move of total repression against any and everyone. And, of course, it's always been in the black community, number one, because we've been the most resistant and we know the history of what this nation is bringing forth against all its citizens. So uh, the fact that everyone is joining in, this is the beginning of a movement that will not only address the situation of police brutality, but hopefully we'll be able to take it to the next level that the world will know about what is happening, the displacement of families in our community through gentrification, no uh, jobs available, totally disenfranchised community, no businesses there, no opportunities, period. And so this is just a bigger picture of total repression, and we see this as we saw it once before uh, during the time of the Black Panther Party. Great. Thank you so much. So, um, Nancy, I would ask you, so what parallels do you see between the work that you're doing and what the Black Panthers were and are continuing to work on? Thank you so much for having me here tonight. Um, I wish it was a completely different struggle. Mm -hmm. I wish that we had finished what we were working on before and it was a, a whole new series of challenges that we were working with. Um, and I think one of the clear 
messages that we have now in this day and time is that it is the same struggle and that we are standing on the shoulders of our ancestors and that we understand that the lessons that they learned are the lessons that we need to use and put into place to make our struggle even more effective and mean make it that this is enough is enough now well so now what inspired you to join the um anti-police terror project what inspired you to join anti-police terror project started uh it came out of um, Onyx Organizing Committee, which was organized after Oscar Grant was killed. And um, I was not a part of APTP at that time. I actually started organizing with APTP at the time of the first call, the national call for four days of direct action to reclaim Martin Luther King's radical legacy. And I loved the model that they used. I loved... Um, I loved all of the pieces. I loved the people who were in front, who were principled, who were energetic, who were enthusiastic, who were real, um, who were not talking about how respectability was going to get us into the places we needed to go to, but really talking about how to do direct action, policy change, working with the families, doing whatever we need to do to make these changes that we need to make. Um, and that was what appealed to me. And I started uh, attending through the Spokes Council was the first thing. Fantastic. Thank you for that. Yeah. So I guess this is a question that is open to everyone on the panel. Um, would you say that your organization is empowering black people? And if so, how? Uh, for those of our listeners who might not be familiar with your organization or students, organizations. And also for you too, um, Dr. Yeah. I'm Dr. an organization Fisco. of one, so. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I can go ahead and begin. I, I think... Um, as a person that isn't really affiliated or connected with um, movements in particular, but as a sole kind of practitioner or a practitioner that actually works in community with others, I think that may be another way of speaking about it. I work with and connect with a lot of folks who are really in a place of asking me the same question or asking each other the same question of what can we do? Um, so just to, to speak to, there are lots of things that we can do. There are small actions that will add up, but we have to do something. Um, I'm a big fan of speaking about it. So as a therapist and a, as a as a teacher and a professor, that's the, my lens, but I really appreciate being in community with other folks, like the folks on the panel, and, and learning about other means of action, um, other means of, um, of stopping what's going on. But I really like to speak from a place of there is something that can be done, so wringing our hands is not enough. So there are things that can be done. I think that... Um Thank you for that question in particular. It's one that I think about a lot and one that I work around a lot. And I think that the system that we're in is set up to make us feel powerful, right? We, I don't know if you have um, studied bureaucracy at all, but it's one of the systems that's set up that makes people feel powerless. And then you add white supremacy and racism into that and you add all these layers of impossibility and you add all of these layers of you can't do it, you can't engage with the system, there is no way to change it and you should just give up. And um, what I see in this movement is... The idea, one of the co-founders was talking about last night at the rally in Oakland that you should find 
whatever it is that you do well mm -hmm. and weaponize it. And that is such a powerful idea that it's not about waiting to get the right paperwork in. Mm -hmm. It's not about waiting for permission. It's not about waiting for someone else to do it for you. Um, and I don't, I don't know, I can assume from the people who are in this room, but I have seen so much happen in the world as we all have. And by the time that we saw... Eric Garner killed, I could not go back to business as usual. And I thought to myself, what can one person do, really? And the truth is everything and nothing, right? And the reason that we organize is so that we're not alone, right? You do the thing that you can do well with integrity and as much power as you bring to the table and you do it with the people who you resonate with, who you love, who you care for, and you do it every day. No vacation. Wow. Oh, that's powerful. Yeah. What about you? Well, I, I simply wanted to say that, you know, the idea of how to take it to the next level. I think uh, this October, uh, just so you know, we've... We have not never disappeared. Right. We've always been here. We have a National Alumni Association. We have a commemorative committee. We also have It's About Time, <laughs> BPP.com. If you go on there, it's a wealth of historical information on the movement, period. Coming in October, I think what is going to happen, which is going to be good for a lot of people, is that we're bringing together organizations. We were talking about that earlier. Um, we're bringing everyone, uh, organizations like the founders of the Young Lords, who are the Puerto Ricans in Chicago and New York, who actually follow the principles of the party. The Brown Berets, who actually follow the same principles in the Latino community. The Asian organizations. The White Patriots, who were from Kentucky and Virginia. And it just blew the system's mind when they said, what are they telling everyone to bring everyone together? Well, it's a common denominator factor. Our kids need to be fed. We all need jobs. We need to uh, have clothes on our back. Ten-point ten platform and program number 10. We want land, bread, housing, education, clothing, justice, and peace. So within that concept, uh, they'll be coming and talking about how we work together. AIM, the American Indian Movement. All the organizations and people, progressives, coming together and saying, here's a formula. That work that is being recognized by the world. And I think at this time, Black Lives Matter, as well as the movement overall, will see some organizational concepts and hear it directly from the mouths of people from various ethnic groups and from various uh, working groups all across the country that made things happen. As a matter of fact, we have people coming from Tanzania. We have people coming from Australia. We even have people coming from India, from the Davidians, who formed a Black Panther Party. We were just really outdone as the principles of the 10-point platform program, which also was adapted by South Africa. So the idea is we didn't expect to be here. We, as you well know, the story of Cointelpro. Um, and, uh, Doctor, I can tell you the psychological aspect and damage that was done to many of us. Um, they say we're suffering from post-traumatic uh, stress, stress disorder. disorder. Uh, we have a concept we were talking about early ongoing uh, traumatic stress disorder. That's what we face in our community. And it was a move to destroy the ideas and concepts of working together. 
If you go to Stanford Archives, 63 survival programs. I didn't even realize we had that many. From pediatrics clinics to uh, uh, clinics, uh, regular clinics, 19 free health clinics. We had had one here in Adeline Street, George Jackson. You had, of course, the infamous breakfast program. Mm -hmm. It was simple. Our kids are hungry. We need to feed them. Now 32 million are being fed. I don't know how good the breakfast is, breakfast and lunch. You had the WIC program, women, infant, children. The, the list goes on sickle cell anemia foundation. 63, the first low-income housing, the first senior housing in the nation. All these things we created in the aspect of survival programs and a need for our community. And I think, I like what the doctor said earlier concerning telling our children not about the degradation of just that they were that we were slaves and we were we tell them about the fact of how we built America. Tell them about Black Wall Street, Tulsa, Oklahoma. How we're now revisiting that concept to create the economics of a community where the dollar stays there. We create on educational facilities. That's what the survival programs were about. And I like what she said also when you talked about making the point of finding your niche and sticking with it. Yeah. Because it is. Uh, it is not. It never was with us a simple okay. day-to-day thing. It was 24-7. And the majority of the people who were party members came from the community, the campuses, the students like myself, and Vietnam vets. And unfortunately, our vets don't have that outlet of the party. And hopefully we can bring them in because I know when those young brothers come back what they're suffering from. And we're seeing the results of what we call the New South. In the South before, the movement was nonviolent. And all this ironically again has happened. And we don't want it to spread exponentially to the North without bringing everybody in. So we're looking at there. there's examples this knowledge is going to be given back to our community. And I'm telling you, the, the young people, I love you because you guys are the torchbearers. You are the legacy keepers. And bringing all of us together, uh, everyone in this room is so important right now to keep this going to where we come together and make it an ongoing dynamic. Mm-hmm. Thank not just you. a day-to-day thing out of anger. Thank you, Natura. Well, Thank you. Yeah, um, I really appreciate everything everyone has already said, um, especially making those historical connections. It reminds me of what um, I'm meeting right now with Angela Davis and making those historical connections and also in terms of Asians for Black Lives, making those connections in terms of how we really need to stand in solidarity as Asians who have a significant amount of privilege to stand with the black community on the side of justice and recognize connections in terms of how our families are also impacted by systems of white supremacy and U.S. imperialism and on different levels, on different means of oppression. We have anti-immigrant sentiment, Islamophobia. And for for me personally, I, I got involved in the group as an adoptee and the the institution of adoption in South Korea was caused by U.S. imperialism and how U.S. imperialism serves to uplift white supremacy. There's all these connections that really need to be made. And so Asians for Black Lives, our audience isn't the black community, it is the Asian community because we want to say to the Asian community, you need to choose the side of justice. You need to stand with the black community. You need to use your privilege. And so we want to recognize that we're targeted differently, but when it comes down to it, our liberation really does depend on black liberation. 
Thank you. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you all. That was wonderful. Reaching every one of you. Yes. You're listening to a conversation about racism in the criminal justice system. We're going to take a short break. Listen to some comments from Oakland native member of the black community and full circle producer, JC Howard. We'll be back in a, we'll be back with the panel in a few minutes. I've never distrusted the police. I've never had a reason. Growing up, the local beat cop would come by my school for the D.A.R.E. substance abuse program. And when I was a traffic attendant at school, we would regularly salute the officers passing by. I've always felt comfortable with police. And why not? I grew up with an aunt and uncle who were on the force. Today is hardly different. Now, granted, I typically slow my vehicle when I see a police car, maybe even sit up a little bit more straight, but I can't say that I'm expressly afraid. But today, I can't help but ask, should I be afraid? This month has been nothing short of tragic. Alton Sterling complied with police and ended up dead. Philando Castile complied with police and ended up dead. Charles Kinsey complied with police and thank God he's in the hospital. He complied with the police and I'm thankful that a near 50-year-old behavioral therapist who was working with an autistic man is in the hospital. I'm thankful for that. I've never been afraid before now, but I can't help but ask, what will I face as a black man next week? Just the other day, my older brother Joshua and his fiancée Taryn welcomed a little baby boy into the world, my very first nephew. I'm so excited for them, and I saw the little guy at the hospital just one week ago on the day of his birth, little Zayden. So cute, so fragile. And as I looked at him, I began thinking, I love this guy so much already, and he has so much to learn. I wonder what I will face next week, but I wonder what he will face next year. I'm an uncle to a black boy. And it seems to me at times the color of his skin may be his only offense and it might put him in danger. I think of kids like Tamir Rice and I think my brother will probably have to talk to Zayden about police safety before he ever talks to him about sex. Some have turned to violence and there's no doubt in my mind that that is not the solution. Violence against the police is not the solution. I personally am not asking for a solution because I don't know what the solution is, but I do seek solace. Some find comfort in protesting and speaking up and standing to be heard. Some find it in logic and others in religion. There's a story in the Bible just after Noah gets off the ark. He gets drunk and lays naked in his tent. One of his sons sees his nakedness and laughs. His other two sons see this and cover their father up. Today, our nakedness, our shame, is in full view of the world. And we must respond. Will we laugh? Or will we address the shame staring us in the face? First they stole our body, can't cry no more. And then they stole our son. I can't cry no more. And then they stole our gods no and gave us new ones. I can't cry no more. And then they stole our beauty. I can't cry no more. 
the comfort in our skin. I can't cry no more. And then they gave us duty. I can't cry no more. And then they gave us sin. I can't cry no more. And then came generations no that helped to build this land. I can't cry no more. The bedrock of a nation I no was laid with these brown hands. I can't cry no more. The solace of a people Then they stole our solace. I can't cry no more. And then they stole our peace. I can't cry no more. With countless acts of malice. I can't cry no more. And hatred without cease. I can't cry no more. A foul and dirty river no runs through this sacred land. I can't cry no more. With every act of terror, I can't cry no more. they tell us where we stand. I can't cry no more. Five hundred years of poison. I can't cry no more. Years of grief. I can't cry no more. Five hundred years of reason. I can't cry no more. To wait with disbelief. I can't cry no more. The legacy is mighty. We can't, cry no more. We can't carry this alone. We can't cry no more. You have to help us fight it. No then together we'll be home. We can't cry no more. Then together we'll be home. We can't cry no more. Then together we'll be home. We can't cry no more. You just heard Cry No More from Rhiannon Giddens. That was Giddens' reaction to the shooting at the Black Church in Charleston last year. Before that, you heard reflections from Full Circle's own J.C. Howard. You're listening to Full Circle on 94.1 FM KPFA. Let's get back to our panel discussion. Thank you, Vika. We left off with Liz from Asian for Black Lives on how her organization is empowering black people. For those of you who have just tuned in, we also have with us Ned Soturu from the Black Panther Party. Thank you, Ned. Nancy Armstrong from Anti-Police Terror Project is here. Thank you, Nancy. Thank you. Dr. Briscoe Smith. And later this evening, Uncle Bobby over the phone. Great. Um, Liz, I want to go back to um, something that you said earlier um, about uh, the Asian, you're speaking for the Asian community, um, but you want them to understand that um, if black lives don't matter, then none of our lives matter, which I found fascinating when I read on your website, because most of the time we're involved with um, communities, black communities only. So can you tell us um, what your organization means when you say you you on your side you say you'll never say all lives matter because black lives matter because if black lives don't matter then no lives matter can you elaborate on that yeah so i think what i'm hearing from your question is two different things mm -hmm. one is the the push to say that all lives matter does not apply to our society we're seeing that every day black lives do not matter we're seeing that in the way they're shot down by the police and videos, but we're also seeing it in other forms of violence, as other folks were saying, with gentrification, lack of jobs, all of those things. It's impossible to say that all lives matter right now because clearly black lives do not matter. And so we cannot say that all lives matter until we can honestly say that black lives are included in that. And that's why we need to lift up the tags that black lives matter. And then the other part of that question is saying that our liberation as Asians is dependent on black liberation. And I think that that really 
connecting with me because personally and then I think a lot of other members of Asians for Black Lives also have similar connections in that our our oppression as people of color, as immigrants, and the different ways in which our families in our home countries are also oppressed under different banners, such as US imperialism, Islamophobia, all these things, they really are upheld by the ideology of white supremacy. And the people who are hit hardest by white supremacy is the black community in the United States. We see that historically and we need to make those connections we need to make those connections intergenerationally and we need to make those connections across cultures and across races so that we can say that we need to stand with the black community we really need to follow their leadership center our struggles around theirs so center their struggles with ours around them and and really lift up that their liberation so that we can be liberated in the process as well Thank you for that. Thank you. Mm-hmm. And this question is uh, directed to everyone on the panel. Mm-hmm. Uh, feel free to answer in whatever order. Uh, what do you hope to accomplish or, or goals for the future? I, I think uh, what uh, the Asians uh, for Black Lives Matters, I think that concept is focal to what I mentioned before. They have began that aspect. It's just like when people used to come to us, white people say, can I join the Black Panther Party? No. What you want to do is go to your own community, organize, tell what's going on. And what begins to happen out of that, you begin to see a real concrete movement of real support. And then we start coming together with common issues that affect us all. You know, education, you know, kids being pushed off of the campuses. That's a whole other issue that I'm working with, with the colleges. They're doing everything they can to keep us from going to school now. Because that's the last level of knowledge, and it is really horrendous. Racism is off the hook on the campuses. Then you start talking about housing. You know, students don't have housing. Uh, People from all our communities don't have housing. And in particular, our house is on fire, the black community. So recognizing that fact and looking at the fact that we have always, over the last several hundred years, had leadership in resistance the most resistant people of U.S. imperialism on the face of the earth. They understand that we have the answers. And with the new generation of young people, the new wave of immigrants, I had a chance to meet with a group of immigrants, and I mentioned to them where their kids being fed breakfast. They said, yes, the schools are feeding them. I had to give them the history that it was the Black Panther Party and the black community and other progressive people that made that happen. You know, the universal health care. I asked them, did they get the women and infant children, you know, the, the cereal, the milk? I had to tell them it was the Black Panther Party. So it was like a great awakening because with the new citizens coming in, eventually they'll be able to vote. They'll be able to use political power, which we were sticklers for uh, electing elected officials and electing people and and encouraging people to get out to vote, which we'll be doing this time. Mm -hmm. So all these things are actually in the beginning. This system, uh, they understand this. So they're doing everything they can to discourage it. And I think what is happening, we were just talking about the autistic brother in Florida. Mm -hmm. I mean, how... How low? It's even difficult to talk about it. In other words, we're just killing everybody 
or we will try to kill you. So I think there's an awakening of the American public, and I think that they want to come together and make changes on this level. And to mention also that the FBI had did a great report, same thing in the 60s and 70s, recruiting from the Klan, recruiting white supremacists, that note over in San Francisco against Black Lives Matter, mm-hmm. they thought it was a hoax until they called the Grand Dragon of California. And he said, this is not a hoax. This isn't a form of the official organization of killing Black Lives Matter and killing Black Panthers and what have you. He said, no, this is not, uh, this is the real deal. When our, and he said, recruiting is great. We will come into any community and recruit. So we're seeing this, this uh, the backlash start to develop. So that's why it's so important that we really start to gel and come together because it's a bigger picture than just killing us. It's all about the, the, the school to prison pipeline, you know, which, you know, prisons are on the stock market, which that means they're here to stay. So I think what you are doing is wonderful, and I think that that's gelling and bringing everybody together as an organization. And we're going to see more movement with white organizations and different, uh, the Latinos are already on it because they realize, you know, they're talking about four million people being thrown out of America illegally, the biggest mass roundup in the history of this country, and it's very possible. So I just want to say that all these things are coming together. We're looking at real structure of what we call a long-term protracted struggle. Thank you. You're welcome. Nancy? I really love that question, what are our goals for the future? Um, And I also want to say the future is now. My goal right now is to defund the police. That's it. Um, And we have a plan for that, right? In the city of Berkeley, we know, you know, on Tuesday night, the city of Berkeley um, signed a resolution that they would divest from, from prisons, right? You were just talking about prisons on the stock market. And I think that that's great. But on the same night, the city council refused to even hear a piece on the ballot about reforming the police review commission in the city of Berkeley, Mm -hmm. right? So they're all about idealism and how we're going to do things that are outside of the city, but we're not dealing with with what happened in the city. We're not dealing with the fact that Kayla Moore was killed by the tactics that the police are learning and using to deal with people who they think are out of control. They're all about compliance and they're about compliance now. Um, And we know that in the city of Berkeley, from the, from the police themselves, 35% of their calls are to deal with mental, people who have mental issues, mm-hmm. mental health issues. And if we, we could do that right now, take 35% of the police budget and start funding preventative services, mental health services, the mobile crisis unit, housing. We know that being homeless makes me crazy, right? Like, um, and I just want to say, like, those things are not things that we have to wait for. Those can be done right now. And in Oakland, I don't know if you guys know this, but um, they fired their chief. Uh, a few people have heard that. <laughs> um, and one of the, the campaigns that APTP has been working on is uh, the four demands for the city of Oakland. And it began without a clear structure of the four demands. We started with the chiefs have to go. Mm-hmm. Right, the chiefs of police ha- police have to go, and those chiefs of police are gone in Oakland and in San Francisco. Right, we over the the four days of action we went into San Francisco. We had a, a wake up chief, sir. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and Asian for, Asians for Black Lives uh, had uh, a breakfast for Mayor Edley. Yes. Right? <sighs> Asking for justice mm-hmm. now. Um, in Oakland, we gave uh, a stay away order to Police Chief Sir, and we also issued an eviction notice to Libby, Mayor Libby Schaaf. Mm-hmm. And all of those, so APTP works with direct action. We also work with policy. So we are asking for right now that we defund the Oakland Police Department by 50%. Because right now, the city of Oakland uses 60% of its budget to fund the police. And I don't know about you, but I don't think that if you, someone was talking about this last night, if you need a place to live, you're not gonna look to someone with a badge and a gun to help you get a place to live. If you need mental health care, you're not gonna look for a person with a badge and a gun to help you get mental health Very care. Very true. Right? Very true. If you true. need housing, if you need services, if you need food, you're not going to look for a person with a badge and a gun. So why are we providing 60% of their budget to go toward people who have a badge and a gun? That doesn't make any sense. So we can do that right away. The second demand is that the city establish a civilian-controlled police review board. Not controlled by city council, not controlled by the mayor. It is clear that the city council and mayor are not on the side of the people. Mm. The third demand is that... Bye, Libby. <laughs> Libby's got to go. She made it clear that her priority was to connect with the police. She spent her first 24 hours in office as mayor with the police. Mm. Not with the people not with the people who are doing mental health services, not with the people who are doing housing services, not with the people who are even doing business, right? She spent it with the police. Hmm. And the fourth is we demand that Nancy O'Malley prosecute all killer and racist cops. And it's clear that what's happening in Oakland is not about one bad cop or two bad cops or even 10 bad cops. There are so many bad cops, they can't even find a police chief. There's no one principled enough to be their police chief in that entire organization. Mm-hmm. So that can all happen now. And the future that we see is a place where we look at what people need and we actually meet those needs, right? The future looks just like the past. The future looks mm-hmm. like what the Black Panther Party did and continues to do. It's not that it used to happen, right? All of these organizations that have been co-opted into the government still exist at the neighborhood level. And they're usually more effective because the people in the community know what the community needs. If you know your neighbors, you know when they have surgery and they need someone to make them soup. You know when their kids need a babysitter. You know all of these things. And so when you organize at the community level, you have a lot of power to really do real effective change. Thank you so much. I know we're going to come back to some more of that um, right now. We want to make sure that um, Dr. Briscoe-Smith gets to... Yeah, so in terms of... um, I'm moved by each thing that people are saying, and it's not that I can pick one, but what I would say is that what I'm interested in is um, dismantling a system of oppression. um, And that we have multiple mechanisms of doing that has been articulated by the members of the panel here that are articulated in the spirit and the ways that we work. And, you know, my pathway is by connecting with parents and what parents need and kids and what kids need. And kids need schooling now. They need 
parents who are available now. They need parents who are not institutionalized in jails. They need um, parents who have time and work and homes to be with them. So I also keep it simple in terms of uh, what I'd like for right now is to not be worried about the kids that I serve um, being killed. Um, my own son, my own daughter. Um, so I'm selfish. I'll keep it real. I don't want to have to worry about that, yeah. you know, um, but I don't have to want to worry about that for the rest of the folks in our community as well. So um, uh, I am imminently hopeful um, and also determined that we are able to affect change right now. Uh, I think we've heard about some of the ways that we can do that. Um, it has to happen now. Better is not good enough. Um, we need to do and make some change in this moment. So I, I see a, a possibility for our children to not have to live under a tyranny of race. Um, race is a made-up construct. Um, racism is real, but race is a made-up construct. There are ways that we don't have to live in this way anymore. So um, I think there are opportunities, um, and not only opportunities, but a mandate to make that change. So we're going to take a quick break and uh, to for announcements. And we'll be returning shortly on this special hour and a half program of Full Circle. You're listening to KPFA 94.1 FM, KPFB 89.3 in Berkeley, 88.1 KFCF in Fresno, and 97.5 K248BR in Santa Cruz and online at kpfa.org. The time is now 7.59 p.m. You are listening to Full Circle. It's a special edition tonight. We're hearing from our panel discussion, our, our um, panel, um, and we're talking about the Black Lives Matter movement and dismantling racism in the criminal justice system. Uh, I would also like to give thanks to La Onda Baita. 30 minutes on this special presentation. Uh, we are currently with our panelists now, and we'll continue with the questions. Okay, so one of the things that when we left off, we were talking about um, the criminal justice system. So I think this is probably a great time to ask everyone on the panel some of the things that you might want listeners to know about ways that we can go about um, dismantling the system that's currently in place and some of the ideas that come to mind. Okay, one one of the things uh, that, well, several things that we have recently looked at, I can say here in the state of California, Governor Jerry Brown, who seems like he's been around forever, he was governor in the 70s. So, <laughs> But anyway, he did, which was a good thing that was passed, was a law allowing California residents to legally film the police and the biggest thing, I think, is no more secret grand jury trials in California, which should be a national mandate that can be worked on by uh, Black Lives movements all across the nation to get that passed in their states. What that means is that when a crime is done, they have to sit down there in Alameda County, L.A. County Courthouse in a public trial which the public would have access to. So no more secret decisions, even though there's a lot to do as far as that is concerned, because I know everyone is looking at what happened in Baltimore. None of the police officers were charged with anything. I think the only police officer who was charged with maybe he got, what, two days? I say it was two days, was Meserly. That was landmark in America. And you can go back and look at any police officer 
has ever any have been convicted and spent any measurable amount of time, it is zero, nil, none. So we have an issue there. And here's another thing. How about police officers actually living within the community they serve? OPD officers, like many of them, can live within four hours. I can take a jet plane from L.A. and live in Hollywood and fly to Oakland and go to work every day. The other thing is, how about having them required to do with your organization or someone else's organization community service work? Just like if you went for a psychology degree, maybe 500 or 1,000 hours. Let's send them out to Youth Uprising, for instance, to work in East Oakland. They don't have to know their police officers. This would give them a great understanding. This is what we used to call community policing because then you get a real feel for, and if you join the force initially and you're a rookie, they should be required to live in the city for a period of time, to interact with youth groups, to interact with community organizations, and to be part of the change of the city. That is the only way you're going to truly get people who are on these police forces who are really concerned about our citizens and treat us not like subhumans and stop the murder because then they're accountable because they're part of our community. Liz, what do you have to say about dismantling the system as it currently exists? Uh, everyone talking about the criminal justice system. <laughs> yes. Uh, I want to lift up the work that APTP, Anti-Police Terror Project, is doing that Nancy has been talking about. I think that, that, our, that their work is really consistent with steps forward towards dismantling that system and their demands that Nancy is talking about. And I think we also need to really study the system. I think there's a lot of things we don't know about it. Uh, and maybe in activist circles, people are more aware, but really the general public and looking at how it's rooted in a system of punishment and not restorative justice at all. And really looking at alternatives that not only consist of restorative justice processes, but also transformative justice going into the communities and really creating solutions from, from the ground up and just, yeah, really what everyone else has been saying on the panel that we really need to look at these solutions for ourselves and create those for ourselves. And so in terms of adjusting the system, uplifting reforms that will really carry us towards dismantling it, but also looking at what we can construct in its place as well. Okay. Nancy? Well, I think that part of what we're doing and part of what Oakland and the community of Oakland has done historically is really show itself as a model for what can be done, mm -hmm. right? And I think that the work that we're doing here is not just about um, what's happening in Oakland, right? We, we are clear that from Oakland to Ferguson, from Oakland to Minneapolis, from Oakland to Baton Rouge, that we are in community. And that the killing and oppression of people there is the killing and oppression of people here, right? Just like Liz was talking about, that we have historically been put in these positions where we are crabs in a barrel, right? And what we are doing is breaking the barrel. We're saying no more. 
It's not going to be this minority against that minority. It's not going to be this town against that town. It's going to be that we are all going to get free together. And we are doing it by organizing across the country. Black Lives Matter, the organization, is organizing across the country. APTP is starting to organize across the country. Surge, showing up for racial justice, has organized, I think, 200 chapters now across the, the country because white people understand that their liberation is tied with ours. They are actively dismantling the system on a daily basis, even by just pointing out that the system exists, right? It's no longer the smog, right? And speaking of smog, I really love that analogy. Mm -hmm. um, I grew up in Los Angeles and uh, my dad was a member of the Black Panther Party. Um, he died when I was 15, but he uh, instilled a lot of values into us. And, um, you know, in Los Angeles, they had a Clean Air Act and people fought against that so hard. Mm -hmm. They said it won't really matter. It won't make a difference. It's just incremental change. And the air changed. Over the course of my lifetime, the air changed, right? And I want to hold on to that piece that we can change the air with what we do every day. And it is happening, right? It's not some far off place. It is happening right now. It's happening in this room. It's happening in the city of Oakland. It's happening in the city of Berkeley. Unfortunately, not so much in the government in the city of Berkeley, but we're working on that. Fantastic. Well, you know, it's so interesting that you say that because I think about what you said during your piece with Vika, Dr. Briscoe Smith, and it kind of comes uh, along with what you're saying right now and what you've said, what everyone has said on the panel about um, having a dialogue uh, uh, among various uh, ethnic groups. And so that makes us ask that same question about conversations with our children, like we talked about earlier, Vika talked about, and how JC's uh, commentary mentioned that. And so what kind of approaches would we um, give to the younger children now about mm -hmm. how to come up with? And I have to say, I think that the kids these days don't have as much of an issue with color as when, maybe say, when I was growing up, a friend is just a friend. It doesn't matter to them. And I think parents teach children how they see people in the world. So what can we do about that? So um, there are a lot of things that we can do. And I think in addition to fostering conversation, it's also um, knowing that kids are watching how we behave. Mm -hmm. So explicitly, we need to have conversations about our expectations of our children, how we expect them to work and operate in the world. So holding expectations that we expect them to not operate in biased ways. We expect them not to replicate a system of oppression. Um, and, you know, we can use different language about that with kids according to their development, but it can be said to them. But also to know that it's not just in what we say, but in what we do. So if we're not modeling um, and showing up, and if we're not able to hold these conversations where they can hear, um, then it's just talk. Um, and kids know. Uh, mm -hmm. Kids know that. So, you know, we have lots of psychological evidence that kids, young children actually come into awareness about race really quickly. Kids as young as six months are able to identify and pay attention to, not identify, but pay attention to issues mm -hmm. of race. So um, the way that I really think about it is that kids are trying to make sense of the racialized world around them while adults are often silent. What we have right now 
Um, and as we've had in the past, but in this moment today is that there's a whole lot of explicit racialized violence that kids are bearing witness to while folks are silent. Um, and that's confusing for kids. So kids are noticing and paying attention to race because we're actually organized to pay attention to difference. Um, a hope that I have is that we get to the place where difference isn't scary. Mm -hmm. We're in a national dialogue where difference is held up as being fear um, and people are being motivated to, to vote and do all kinds of policy things according to their fear. Um, I'd like to work towards dismantling that by understanding that difference is not pathology. Mm -hmm. Difference is actually a place that we can get together. We also know that kids do this better than we do. So there's a research study that found you put two nine-year-old kids together for three minutes, one with high prejudice, one with low prejudice, get them in a room together, let them talk to each other. They come out with lower levels of prejudice. Kids know how to do this on their own. Um, uh, the issue is that we don't let kids get together to do that, or we're mm -hmm. too scared to have them have conversations about prejudice, or we underestimate their capacity to engage in sophisticated dialogue and action. Um, but in the piece before, and as I heard before, eight-year-old going, um, uh, going to the Oakland Police Department to talk about what he wanted to see, our kids have the capacity um, if we allow them to, to do so. Um, and we have the, the kids have the ability to negotiate this with our support and if they see us modeling it. So that's important to be able to do. Yeah, definitely. Thank you. Thank, right. Thank you, you so much. Well said. And with that being said, we're going to take a quick uh, music break. Uh, we'll be having Uncle Bobby tuning in over the phone, joining our panel here shortly. So many people complain, always talk about change, yo, but what's your contribution to life, yo? Either you with it or ain't with it, if it ain't broke, don't fix it, yo. What's your contribution to life, yo? Either you give or you take, make moves or you wait, yo, but what's your contribution to life, yo? You're about to witness three of the most common tales of man, woman, and human. The difference between the three is that there is no difference, just other outcomes. Yo, Listen yo, and witness yo, the common. Hey, yo, my mama had beginning for life. Love, carousel, cuss, yell, and fight Seven nights a week No respect when they speak uh, Disrespect between the sheets The ends don't meet No rice, beans, or meat My mama was the breadwinner Plus she had to cook his dinner My daddy was a full-time sinner Papa was a stoner Stayed gone till November Off of that yak That made him act Like the devil done Took his soul and ain't giving it back Remember that when you play for the blessed Speedy victory for the poor and oppressed I can't stand the stress The test the time press up against my mama and daddy chest I try to rest with no stretch of the mind I can't find no peace of mind Within this family of mine, yo She got chips and you don't, that's bottom line It's just the way love goes, hmm, let's rewind You really ain't paid, you clocking minimum wage Now basically you a slave, your wife studies for days No money for much, just movies and such The way your two hands clutch, you know it's love, not lust Now she's sick of the bus and using you as a crutch And on top of this stuff, she graduates in a month hey, A new job, got a clock in the dark now she's buying new clothes and taking you to the show You feeling like you the hoe, not knowing which way to go And ultimately you know you ain't feeling the soul You need to get up, get out and get something Your job ain't nothing, all these years you just been fronting That's the way she played you, the talk didn't rage you Went back to your days of a 
always said, I'm out hustling for food, kitchen and need. Why does it get spinach hands on booze? Just giving weed. I thought that we'd agree with two kids to feed. That you would slow the road, but instead of switching your speed, you slap me. You can't attack me, thinking I'm gonna be happy. In fact, get to packing and leave rapidly after we witnessed. No love between parents. The father type that was once on the scene vanished. Supreme damage to couples that match these. Producing generations of kids with latch keys. Her daughter learned from mama how to reject men. Her son attracts women that don't respect men. And then, one parental provider can be the plan. But no woman can truly teach a boy to be a man. That's why I'm always telling these many pals of mine the most that you can spend on any child is time. Look, we don't have all the answers. We're victims also to the same situations. But man plans and a lot of plans. And a lot is the best of planners. So what's your contribution Yo, to life? A part of the problem, are you a part of the solution? What's your contribution to life? Yo, so many people complain, always talk about change, yo. But what's your contribution to life? Yo, either you with it, ain't with it. If it ain't broke, don't fix it, yo. What's your contribution to life? Yo, either you give or you take, make moves or you wait, yo. But what's your contribution to life? Yo, what's your contribution to life? audience that was Jurassic 5 with what's your contribution to life uh, next we have on the phone Uncle Bobby are you there yes I am can you hear me yes we can thank you for joining us tonight maybe uh, you can give us a little bit of information on what you're doing at the uh, Mario Woods Remembrance uh, yes I most definitely can uh, first uh, you know uh, thanks for uh, allowing my voice to be shared again here on KPFA to the listeners um, yes, I am over here at the San Francisco um, event where Mario Woods uh, celebration uh, is taking place. It's a remembrance celebration here at the Cornerstone Missionary Baptist Church. Um, you know, it's been a very, very powerful event in remembering Mario Woods uh, right before coming on. Um, Mario's mother, Gwendolyn Wood, um, just finished speaking. And right now, presently, uh, many other families that are here that have suffered the same pain as Miss Wood uh, with losing a loved one to, again, state-sponsored violence, are sharing a few words also. So this evening here has been really, um, you know, good, uh, you know, really heartfelt, uh, you know, and why we doing what we doing as far as, um, you know, working and really change the systemic uh, sick police departments that uh, have been allowed to kill our loved ones. Thank you for that. Thank you for that. Uh, while we have you on the phone here, we would also like to have you maybe speak a little bit about your involvement with Black Media Appreciation Night. Uh, most definitely. Uh you know, uh, as a co-founder of the Love Not Blood campaign uh, and having uh, the opportunity to continuously share Oscar's story, uh, you know, I just want to definitely give a shout-out to the fact that had it not been for media, uh, had it not been for the community that embraced us, stood with us, cried with us, 
prayed for us, prayed with us, went back and forth to court with us, um, you know, and the community that used their First Amendment right to speak to this injustice, and those medias that reached out to the family to allow us to share who Oscar was with the world, uh, no one would know who Oscar is today. So this Media Appreciation Day is, uh, is an important day, uh, especially for communities that, uh, yeah, as we know, don't have a voice on the mainstream media. Mm-hmm. All right. Thank you very much for that word, Uncle Bobby. So right now we're on the topic of the, inf- the impact that this has on the lives of children. Uh, we had finished up earlier with Dr. Smith um, answering that question. We're going to go ahead and move into Nancy. Uh, if you'd like to go over um, the importance of um, educating our children young or whatever you'd like to speak to on the topic of children with these matters. Oh, thank you. Um, it's nice to hear you, Uncle Bobby. I haven't seen you in a little bit. Uh, I wanted to talk a little bit about, uh, you know, I mentioned before the four days of action, 96 hours of action to reclaim Martin Luther King's radical legacy. And this year, as part of that, my children, uh, with some of their friends, organized a play-in. And, you know, uh, Dr. Briscoe Smith was talking about how children are affected and that they're paying attention. They know what's happening, right? And they don't always know what to do. And what they need are allies and accomplices to help them do what they need to do to experience that. And, and our children organized a play-in with the hashtag safe to play. And we helped them get the materials they needed. They had chalk. They, they chalked drawings and names. They had pictures of children who've been killed by the police. And they believe that every child should be safe to play, right? And they got to e- express their grief and mourning um, on the morning of the, of the march, on the fourth day of the, of the weekend to reclaim Martin Luther King's radical legacy, we did uh, our second annual teach-in for families, and we had lots of groups, Abundant Beginnings, um, Dance Out Loud and Peace Out Loud. Um, some people from Abundant Beginnings put a comic book together that Ben Jones um, illustrated. And we had stations where the kids could learn about inequalities. They could learn about how to do direct action. They took down an ice bus. <laughs> they did all sorts of great things. And fam- we did storytelling with families. Rice and Beans was out there. Uh, Boom Shake was out there. A lot of really amazing groups were contributing to this effort. And then we did a march um, a children and families march from the teach-in to the main march. And we are saying that children are a part of this movement. This is not about um, putting them in front or behind, but really, like, we know that our children are also murdered and that their voices also need to be heard in this. Uncle Bobby, I know we have you on the phone, and thank you very much for your patience. Um, is there any final words that you would like to spread to our listening audience? You know, I would say, um, you know, first, uh, you know, that uh, reclaiming Martin Luther King's weekend was uh, was uh, definitely a benefit for the children. Uh, we are actually on our way to Ferguson for Michael and Brown anniversary, uh, second year anniversary of, uh, of course, his murder. And one of the projects that we have going on there is called a truth-telling project for the youth. So um, 
we're trying to get Tatiana there. That's Oscar's granddaughter. Uh, and many other families, like Tamir's Rice um, um, brother will be there. And uh, Michael Brown has some little brothers and sisters that will be there. But many families, what I'm getting at, many families are coming to the event and they're bringing their children to give them uh, a chance to work out what they're feeling, what they're struggling with. One of the things that I'll never forget that really, really hurt me and made me understand what this movement is all about was when uh, I didn't hear Tatiana say it, but I was told that Tatiana would see a police officer or a police car and she would tell all her little cousins to duck the police. So that told me just how traumatized the children have been affected by, um, you know, their fathers, their friends, their cousins being murdered by the police. So whatever um, work that we can do to help them uh, emotionally get past or even better deal with the situation of their loved one being murdered is a benefit for us. Uh, Lori Valdez out of San Jose, son Josiah, father was murdered. And, uh, you know, and it's sad, but he's five years old, going on six. I think he's six now. has been struggling with his father being murdered because he always asked when is daddy coming home or why did God have to take his daddy or can he go see his daddy in heaven? You know, so here we have another child that's born into this world that is confused on this issue of why the so-called officers that's supposed to be here to serve and protect have taken uh, his father. But I'll say this in close. Um, this move, this, this work is not about me. It's not about us. It is about these babies. So everything that we do to make this world a better place for them is what we have to do so that they can have the real freedom, justice, and equality. Because no matter how much we give them today to deal with this situation, if we don't do the work to make it right now, all that work that we're putting in to make them a better person will will be for naught because they will be looked at as human beings. And their lives will continue to be lost. So though we're working with them, the most important aspect is to really bring in freedom, justice, and equality and the respect of life for people of color today. Mm-hmm. And that is the why we do this work. That is the work that we have to do. And if we fail in our responsibility to get that done, then what kind of life will our children have? Amen. Mm-hmm. All right, so um, we are kind of running out of time here. Um, before we wrap up, I would like our panelists to maybe give their final thoughts. Uh, thank you so much, uh, Uncle Bobby, for being on the phone with us today. Thank you, Uncle Bobby. Again, thank you for uh, having me. Uh, I'm sorry I couldn't be there. I'm stuck here at the Mario Woods event. But, uh, you know, thank you for allowing me to share a few words. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Right now, final thoughts. We've got about three, two minutes. Um, yeah, I really appreciate being on this panel. Uh, Thank you to everyone. And hearing all these things, I have a lot that I want to process and really move forward with. And just really appreciate the movements from the Black Panther Party to the Black Lives Matter movement. And I really think that like people have already been saying that this really is the start to liberation, which is what we're moving towards, and we're already in it. And that joining the community, joining the struggle... It, ch- it changes you and it changes you for the better and it's going to be changing society and it, it's a really liberating experience. So I, I welcome people to join it. I just want to say uh, I'm happy to be here again. This is wonderful. This is the beginning. These discussions need to go on. 
everyone can go to www.bpp50th.com. You'll see all the information. One of the main purposes also is to establish Oakland, the East Bay Area, as a hub for the social justice. That's Montgomery is for civil rights. And eventually we want to have a social justice center. There's a lot of other things to go beyond. So in this event in October, more of you and everyone will be participating from the 20th through the 23rd. Oakley Museum, all seven and a half acres. Major concerts working with Hip Hop TV. I can't mention the artists who will be here, but maybe at another time we can do that. But it will be a focal point for all of us to come together to continue this work on a solid basis. Thank you so much for having me, Jerisa and Ephraim, and I really appreciate getting to be on such a, a wonderful panel. Um, on behalf of the Anti-Police Terror Project, I want to say that whatever we do to lift up this message is part of liberation. And I want to encourage each person out there listening to really find what it is that you do and weaponize it. And we are facing a regional and a countrywide problem, and we have regional and countrywide solutions. I agree, and thank you all deeply for being in partnership with you all and um, reiterate the ideas that we can take care of our kids now, we can affect change now. There is something we can do right now in this moment. Listening is a thing, speaking is a thing, showing up. So thank you for the opportunity. Thank you so much. Thank you. Again, um, this has been a very special edition of Full Circle, um, and uh, we've reached the end of tonight's show. But let's keep this conversation going. For our part, we'll be keeping the conversation going, uh, which you can catch on our website, kpfaapprentice.org, where we're going to post the show as well as links um, associated with our guests and pictures from this evening. So definitely check it out, kpfaapprentice.org. For the black folk, for the Black Lives Matter folks out there in the street today um, and the rest of the weekend, I know you all are out there um, in your different actions this weekend. Thank you all for your amazing work and stay safe. We also want to thank our guests this evening, Dr. Allison Briscoe-Smith, Uncle Bobby, Saturu Ned, Elizabeth Niaros, and Nancy from um, Anti-Police Terror Project. Thank you also to the producers behind the scenes today, David De La Gran and JC Howard, as well as our panel co-facilitator, Teresa Adams. And a big thank you to Marie Cha for your production help on this show. Our opening music was Hell, Hell You Talking About by Janelle Monet, featuring Rio the Artist Supernova and Shiloh Bloodworth. Our closing music is All Right by Kendrick Lamar. Our executive producer is Miss M. Our technical director is Freewin Franklin Sterling. Joy Moore is our production consultant. Thanks again to J.C. Howard on the controls and Sylvia Torres, our technical assistant. I've been one of your hosts, Vika Aronson, and my co-host over there is Ephraim Colbert. Thank you for joining us tonight on Full Circle. Stay tuned. La Onda Bajita is next. You want you a house, you a car, 40 acres and a mule, a piano, a guitar, anything, see my name is Lucy.